Have you ever cried during a World Vision ad? Maybe you didn't cry and you felt guilty for it. They're powerful feelings and it can be confusing. We're forced to ask questions about how we live our lives and what impact we can have on people that live overseas in cultures far removed from our own. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Anthea Smits. She has certainly felt the full array of these emotions and she acted on them. She made some big changes in her life and she was very generous to share some very personal stories of that journey with us today. Anthea is guest number three here on Good Future, where I ask the big questions about the future of business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. I got so much out of this conversation with Anthea. I've followed her work for some time now. She is CEO of the Difference Incubator, otherwise known as TDI, an organization that works with entrepreneurs to build social enterprises that are sustainable for their communities. They work here in Australia, but they also do a lot of work in the Pacific, in Vanuatu, Samoa and Fiji. And that's what our conversation focuses on today. Anthea's journey is a special one because it's so diverse. She went from working for Disney for many years to setting up a charity in Cambodia, but that was before she decided that there was a better way, that she could combine her business and branding skills with her passion for helping to build sustainable communities. I'm sure many of my listeners would recognize this as being the social enterprise model, but when Anthea was getting started, the term social enterprise didn't even exist. It's fascinating to hear about the lessons she learned and the challenges she faced along the way. And it's pioneering work like this that got us to the vibrant social impact sector that exists today. Anthea and TDI have delivered some really great projects and a recent success that we discussed in depth was the Yumi project in the South Pacific. It's a collaboration between TDI, Carnival Cruises, yep, that's the cruise ship company, and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. They help local tour operators to build businesses that offer a more authentic cultural experience. For tourists who are coming ashore and who want to go beyond the superficial photo opportunities and gift shops, it's a great story, that one. But I'll leave it there as I want to dive into the conversation. I do want to offer a small apology that the audio skips a beat momentarily in this one. It's nothing major, but please do stick with us. And as always, for any projects or books that were mentioned, I'll put links in the show notes and they can be found on my website at johntreadgold.com. Alrighty then, enough of that. Let's get into it. Here we go. great to dig into your background. You haven't always worked in, in development or in finance. When did you first become aware of, of social enterprise and impact investing? It's been quite a journey for me. I grew up in a very normal home. I grew up with everything I needed to make my way in life. I wouldn't have called myself as being necessarily very socially aware or anything like that. And I was probably in my early to mid-20s when I had a bit of a moment of crisis, I think it was very much a sliding doors moment. I was working at Disney. I had a great career. I was part of their sales and marketing team. I was, you know, fast-tracked in their junior exec program and doing really, really well. And so, you know, I'm going to show my age as I tell this story. This is in the sort of early to mid-90s. 
And I was having a conversation with a girlfriend of mine and uh, she was talking about this natural disaster that was happening in Africa. And it was one of those moments, and I don't know if you've ever had these, John, where you're sitting there and you say something and you wish you could put the words back in your mouth. And I came up with this thing that I said. I said something like, well, they're there and I'm here. What do you want me to do about it? Can we stop talking about it? It was a moment for me when I realised there was actually a whole world that I wasn't paying very much attention to. Something wasn't right with me and the way I thought. If I was really practical about it, it was really that sometimes the problem is so big I don't even know how to think about it. I'm an action person. I very quickly go into problem solving. Problems like that, I can't even think about how to problem solve it. The story goes on, my friend was so angry with me. She didn't talk to me for weeks. And I realised I had very little empathy for global problems. And I look back now and some of my friends tease me and laugh at me because I could watch like a World Vision ad, for example, I was like, oh, well, yeah, okay. It just didn't do anything. You know, it's supposed to move you. You're supposed to feel something emotionally or whatever. And I didn't have any of that. And I went on a journey over a couple of months. And this is going to sound weird, but my goal was to cry in a World Vision ad. (laughs) And it was really about how do I find a deeper human connection to what is going on in um, the global community? And I've said this a few times, but I realised there was something fundamentally broken in the way that I saw and thought about the world and was very insular. And I'm really aware, actually, I could have ignored the moment and just left it and just moved on with my life, but I didn't. And I'm really thankful because it brought me to a place that is quite different. I now cry in World Vision ads. And how did I get to that point? Well, what happened was I ran into another friend of mine who'd been travelling to Cambodia, volunteering in all sorts of different organisations. And she was at a stage of life where she had her first child and she was thinking about the world that she wanted to raise that child in. And she wanted to understand poverty. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I I grabbed a couple of days with my friend Kate. And I said, just talk to me about what you're seeing, what you're experiencing and what's going on. Over two days, I didn't feel anything or I didn't, nothing really happened. And then on the last day, the only way I know how to describe it, something broke in me. And I've probably never seen the world the same again. I tell this story because this was the beginning for me of my journey into looking at the world differently and um, actually thinking about um, different models to address the world's problems. It was a couple of months after that that I got on an aeroplane with my friend Kate and we went to Cambodia. We fast forward to today, out of that experience came the 2H project, which is one of the very first experimentations for me around social enterprise models. 2H today has a sustainable farm. We have an eye clinic. There's a midwifery program. We've played around with microfinance, a whole bunch of things over the last 15, 20 years. Without this experience or this moment of realising there was something wrong and going on that journey, I probably would not have ended up where I am today. And there's been lots of experimentation at 2H. We are really committed to two things. One is to raise Indigenous leaders. And the second thing was to create sustainable models. So that 
it's my journey to this point and uh, the very early days of my experimentation in that space. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's really personal. I really appreciate that. In the re- research I've been doing in the last couple of years into social enterprise impact investing, so many of the people I've spoken to ha- have had stories like that. And I think there's always a pivotal moment. And that's really the key to what this podcast is all about, to try to dig into that and, and trying to bring that to light so other people can, I think, scratch and niggle that a lot of people have. And I think it's really interesting there that you felt that you were quite driven to find a change because I think so many people are really happy just to keep going. You know, they, they can stay in the role. They think, you know, I need the certain career. I need the certain house. But but you made the effort and it took you three days to sit with your friend until that shift happened. Can you talk a little bit more about what you think sort of drove you to really sit down and try to do that? Was there something that you felt lacking, wanted to work with more purpose for that sort of thing? It sounds like you were certainly quite successful. Yeah. It actually took me longer than three days because it was months before that of just mm. wrestling with this. I read in this space more than I've ever read before. I watched more documentaries and anything I could get my hands on. I had this deep curiosity <laughs> in mm. everything in life. And I think that's what drove me to this place is, one, recognising actually myself that it's not okay. It's not okay to say that. It's not okay to even think that, that actually we're born with privilege in Australia. We're born with lots of stuff. (laughs) And it's not okay to have a problem on the other side of the world and to be completely disconnected from it. And I think allowing myself to go to the depths of that. I think back now, it was an agonising couple of months. Will I genuinely feel able to allow those things to move me? I just was committed to explore and to unpack my own emotions, my own feelings, what was going on in my brain that came out of my mouth that day that exposed some things that I wasn't happy about myself. And that driving to deeper human connection. Yeah, and it must have been quite a leap, you know, if you accept in yourself that it's saying, okay, you've worked in the world of business, how then can you adapt that? Is that sort of what tipped you towards something like TDI, where you're now CEO? At the time I was working at Disney when this was going on, I spent about 10 years with them and their national sales team. That was brilliant. I learned heaps about big brand, about customer, about marketing, got to work on some um, incredible product. We saw the transition from VHS to DVD and, like, just incredible. Around the time that this was unpacking for me, I had been there for about nine or ten years and I was thinking about moving on anyway. And I went from that to working at Urban Life Church, which when I joined them and I led that organisation for about 10 years as well, when I started working with them, they were a very normal church. When I finished with them, there wasn't anything normal about them whatsoever. They ran a number of social enterprises. There was a number of social services that they offered into that area and they ended up with a large, because we had a large block of land that we sold, a large investment portfolio that's now Impact Invested and still manage that. So I always describe it as Disney was like I learnt business and I learnt how to do business and then I flipped and this is, tells you something about my character. I went for, on a pendulum swing from one side of the coin to the other and I, I went to Urban Life and originally we started the Do Good journey. Along that 
journey, I took what I knew about business because we started social enterprises and we didn't call them social enterprises back then. That word didn't exist. We Mm. ran them as businesses, but they had integral mission and were serving a beneficiary. I went from one extreme to another and I feel like TDI for me is the bringing together of two worlds. I'm really interested in that element that social enterprise didn't exist as a concept. Where did you get the idea for running a business model like that? I suppose actually it came down to I didn't want to shake a tin. (laughs) I didn't want to go around begging for money all the time to do the good stuff I wanted to do in the world if I'm really honest about it. Um, although I've had to do a fair amount of that in my life. I didn't want to do that and I was convinced that there were different ways that we could do this beyond just asking everyone for money and could we have different models. And as I said, we had very few people to talk to about, you know, today you can pick up lots of books, Everyone, you know, there's podcasts, there's heaps of people Mm -hmm. talking about social enterprise. We had very, very few people as we were exploring both in 2H and Urban Life as we're exploring these ideas, the doing good or the delivery of the service or the beneficiary sat very central in all the models that we delivered and they were integrated Uh, and that was important to us that it wasn't just, oh, we make money here and we give it over here. And so it's about how do we bring those two worlds together and we didn't have language, you know, I we all sound articulate about it today. We didn't have language. We didn't know what we're doing, but we were convinced that we could find new models to deliver the social outcomes that we were looking for. Mm, Look, that's a a really great journey. And I like the way we're moving through quite chronologically here. And and we're sort of at the beginning of your work at TDI, the Difference Incubator, where, as I said, you're you're now CEO. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you found yourself in that role and a question that I find interesting in, in something like that where a key bit of a shift is in your first month, what most surprised you? I've been part of the team at TDI coming up to four years in March. I was deputy CEO prior to becoming CEO earlier this year. The very first project I was handed was a social enterprise in far north Queensland called Team Wild that an impact investment had been done in and there was four investors so this is four or five years ago four investors five investors had come together of which urban life was one of those to do this impact investment it was this beautiful social enterprise that was working with disenfranchised young people and it was a yacht and it all comes together and the social enterprise was around it was a luxury yacht that you could charter for the day but that those young people would man that yacht and there was a whole training program that sat alongside it And in the off-season, they'd work on the yacht and and, um, do all sorts of adventure stuff with it as well. But it had run into some problems. Like a week after I started at TDI, Team Wild went into receivership and ended up going to liquidation. And it was like my first project. that I'd been there for like three days and they said, oh, we need you to sort this out, right? So I'd never done anything like this before. It was a real eye-opener for me around that it wasn't all a bed of roses, And it wasn't all going to be easy. Here's this example of failure. And I I had to, you know, work with investors uh, to manage their expectations. The whole thing in the end ended up going belly up. It it wasn't that exciting at all. But I learned so much through that process. 
And as I said, what surprised me was I thought I was coming into this nice world where everything was going to be great and we delivered really great things. And I realized how early we are or we were and we still are in our journey to delivering these types of models and understanding these types of models and how far we have to go and how difficult and complicated that sort of process is. What a story. That's quite a baptism of fire and, and, and it really sounds like the lessons you learned early on have stuck with you. I'd love to hear about how that's been translated to your time at TDI and if you can fill us in on, on how that whole business operates. I might tell you a little bit of our story. So we came out of a philanthropy group called Donkey Wheel who were some time ago were wrestling with this idea of we grant on one hand and we invest on the other. Wouldn't it be great if we could bring those two worlds together? And I always talk about that conversation for the Donkey Wheel board was the birthplace of TDI because the beautiful thing I love to this day about Donkey Wheel is they recognise very quickly that there's a reason they grant and a reason they invest and actually there's a reason those worlds don't always sit well together. But they didn't stop there. They said, they asked the question, what needs to exist in the market for that to become a possibility? And right there they said, oh, TDI, <laughs> let's start TDI. Well, it wasn't called TDI back then. It was a pro- it became a project of Donkey Wheel. And um, the very first group we worked with was Street. When we met Beth, she was a coffee cart in uh, Federation Square. And she was trying to work out this business model of how do I bring together a, a cafe and working with disenfranchised young people, helping them find belonging. And we did their first capital raise. And you fast forward to today and Street's gone on and done a second capital raise and have a track record in a number of areas and a number of bows to their business. And so TDI is about working with the entrepreneur to get that model to a place of sustainability. And we do that in all sorts of different ways. We do we use accelerators, we have an investment readiness program, do it both in Australia and we do it in developing markets and have been working with EFAT in the Pacific over the last four or five years as well alongside that. We're um, a fee-for-service model, but in the work that we do in the Pacific, uh, we're generally funded by uh, DFAT or by other agencies that are interested in exploring new models of how how this works. And, yeah, so we work with the entrepreneurs, helping them build out those, what do those business models work and what problem are you trying to solve, what is the model that we're building around that, Um, and how do we make all those things work I think that uh, issue around there needs to be a reason to grant and a reason to invest as being quite different options and that it's not simply here's a problem, let's invest. It's here's a problem, let's look at the best solution, let's look at the best strategy and that could be a grant from DFAT. It could be you guys building a social enterprise around it. I just wonder about how you guys roll into a project in that way. Do you ever come across a project and have the option to sort of say, well, perhaps it's not right for an enterprise kind of solution that grants would work better or does it, does it normally um, come to you as an enterprise solution? No, generally it comes as an enterprise solution. Although having said that, even in early stages, it generally needs some sort of either friends, schools or family or some sort of philanthropic money to get it off the ground initially. But generally what the groups that we work with are looking to build out a business model around the problem that they're trying to solve. 
Yeah, very good. And I'd love to dig into some of those projects. The Yumi Tourism yeah. Partners project looks great. And uh, you guys received an award for that recently. Can you give us a bit of background about that one? So Yumi is a partnership between uh, Carnival Australia, um, TDI and Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT. And Yumi means uh, it's a pigeon uh, word for you, me, you and me. So at the centre of this program is partnership and whether it's a partnership between those three parties or the long-standing partnership that Carnival's had with the communities that we're working in, Yumi started with us um, being introduced to Carnival and them describing a problem or an opportunity that they wanted to solve. And basically they've had an 85-year relationship with the communities that they travel to and what happens is you go on a cruise with them and you dock at the port and that you generally get off the ship for the day and you'll go and do a shore tour. And one of the things that they had observed or that they wanted to see more of was more in local Indigenous-run shore tours. Their guests were looking for culturally authentic experiences and a deeper dive into culture. And so we've been working with um, Carnival on the ground to deliver an accelerator program for um, local Indigenous entrepreneurs. Often they come to us with an idea and we'll work with them around building out that idea and then building out a business around that idea and then how to navigate the procurement system of um, or the contracting system of Carnival. And so we've been working in Vanuatu, in Santo and Port Vila, and we're about to hit PNG. And so in Santo, which is the most developed port, we've achieved um, three contracts which go live this month, which has been very exciting. So there's shore tour operators, local shore tour operators, who are now contracting those tours to Carnival and will be part of that process. And the types of tours that we've been developing is, I'll give you an example, Annie, who we've been working with in Santo, Annie grew up with her grandmother teaching her about all the medicinal qualities of the trees and plants that are naturally within their environment. And when we met Annie, she had this desire to, particularly with coconut, to turn that idea of the medicinal qualities, the cultural significance of coconut into a tour that she taught tourists when they got off the boat they could come and have this experience with coconut and so it's called tree of life and it explores coconut from tree to bottle and the tour is you get to extract your own coconut oil you get to understand all the different processes that can happen with coconut the medicinal qualities of coconut it's very hands-on experience and they're the types of tours that we're, we're looking to, to develop, which they, at the moment, those types of tours weren't uh, readily available in uh, some of those ports. It's a really interesting angle on sustainable tourism and, and engaging with Carnival. And that's amazing to hear that they've got such a long, I think you said, 90-year experience with these communities. Did you learn much? from Carnival Cruises from their experience and did they sort of offer some some lessons with such a long experience? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that uh, has been is quite different about this program and has helped us to really get the outcomes that we're getting is Carnival have been a very present stakeholder in the process. 
Um, and actually part of the accelerator, what we do is in the second part of it, we time it that there's a ship in port and those entrepreneurs, so we've been working with them for a couple of days already and then we put them on a ship for a day and, you know, one of the challenges with a lot of these markets is a lack of understanding of the markets that or the people that they're selling to. And so we recognise this very early from other work that we've been doing. And so we said, okay, so how do we do that? And we said, let's put them on a boat for a day or a ship for a day, I should say, so that they get an understanding and an appreciation for who they're selling to. After that day, we do a, it's like a speed dating piece where some of the tourists and those um, tour operators come together and they're testing their tours. They almost do a co-design piece. And without doubt, that is the biggest aha moment of the program. All the tours change after that because they've got instant feedback. There's this aha moment. Oh, I get it. I understand this world that I'm trying to sell into. Um, so Carnival have been very present. There's some representation from uh, there in all the accelerators that we're running because we need that piece with the how do you navigate that system and what does that system look like? I can teach you how to build a business, but if there's a system that's a little bit overwhelming for you, how, how do you navigate that? And so Carnival have been present as part of that. So, yes, we've been learning from them. And they have this saying internally that says that we want the communities we visit to want us and we want to add value to them. And it's this general sense of how do we add value back to those communities. It's great. It's very, very positive. They're certainly, um, you know, a key commercial stakeholder in that role, I can see. When you run other projects, how do you bring in investors in like what sort of the direction and the portal that investors come in to observe or do you simply build the enterprise up do you sort of act as an intermediary to bring yeah. investment in just only the last couple of months we've done something that's been quite different in the space traditionally um what we've done is we'd identify business we'd work with them to a point where we got investment ready we've engaged investors a little bit earlier in the piece but generally we'd go to them once we were once it was close to being investable. So what we've been doing that's quite different in this space is a couple of weeks ago I was in Samoa with two investor groups. One is a group from New Zealand and the other is a group, the Australian um, Pacific diaspora representation from that. And we got on the ground together. We're visiting businesses together. Um, it was the first time we've done it quite like this and so early stage. And so what we did after we did businesses, we saw 20 or 30 businesses together, we went away and we were able to have really clear dialogue of where they saw opportunity or where they had interest or thought their investor network might have interest. Um, so traditionally, yes, we've usually just gone away and identified a business and found what we're looking for and started working with them. Well, we are exploring different models of bringing investors in earlier and um, having them as part of that journey and part of that process. I think that'll be very interesting to see how that unfolds over the next couple of months. We'll make another trip back into Samoa together early this year to work together and to begin to do some work with some of those, those businesses that they've said, yeah, we, we have a real interest and we have a real interest in the potential of the social impact of this one or this one or this one. 
Yeah. Oh, look, that's great. And and I guess evolving the system and, and bringing different stakeholders in at different stages and, and just learning your processes. On the one hand, you might have big NGOs, you might have philanthropic individuals, family offices, um, and they're used mm-hmm. to giving grants. But then they see, hang on, we've got all of these savings. We'd love to invest for impact in the in the same way that we invest to make money. Have you come across any examples of, of groups that have done that effectively? All that money, is, that different type of money is still required in the system. I don't think any of us are saying who are building social enterprises that, oh, we shouldn't be granting or we shouldn't be gifting money because there's always situations that need that. But I do think that we can think differently about the way that we gift or the way that we grant. And we're doing some work at the moment in PNG with a couple of groups. This is a bit of a trial by a donor who said, I really want to um, incentivize the groups that we're working with to build out sustainable models. I know they don't have sustainable models currently, and I, I want to incentivize them to do that. And so what they've done is they've written into their contracting, we'll grant you over the next three years, but part of that money is not going to be there forever. And we want to build in a capacity building piece over that three years as well that will help you build, build out a sustainable model. So we're working with two groups currently, two NGOs currently in PNG in exactly this manner is helping them identify a market for for what they do. I don't know that it's about, you know, you just go from granting to investing. I think there's a journey that needs to be made by a lot of us and it's actually allowing people to make that journey. Um, And so with that, how do we think differently about the money that we're giving and how do we, you know, we've begun to use that word of how do we be catalytic in the way that we grant and what does that look like and how do we incentivize groups who are open to a sustainable model, how do we incentivize them and build their capacity at the same time to do that and, and we see lots of places where we see it's a market solution here. Please stop granting. And then on the other hand, oh my gosh, this needs a grant. It's you know five years off a market solution. And so, how do we open dialogue across that ecosystem to have those those discussions? And the example I was giving before about Samoa, part of that was that because the two investor groups want to play at very different stages of that ecosystem. So you've got the group out of New Zealand who are more at that growth stage and then you've got the diaspora guys who want to look at that earlier stage that seed funding even in some places granting and how do we play across that system to get the best outcome and to fast track people to sustainable models so much diversity there i'd love to look deeper at the issue of of entrepreneurialism. In my experience, working in, in a remote emerging market, it's a key barrier to uh, getting social enterprises off the ground is a lack of this entrepreneurial talent to recognize business opportunities and manage a group of people. How do you guys um, teach entrepreneurs? I mean, you teach entrepreneurs in Australia who want to build social enterprises, but you also go offshore and do the same thing. Is there quite a difference in, in, that, in that lesson? Yeah. The carnival example or the Yumi example is quite good in this. Because I think a lot of it comes back to that lack of 
knowledge or understanding of the markets that they're trying to sell into. And therefore, because there's a lack of knowledge or understanding, the identifying of opportunity is also very challenging as well. And so, yes, we're generally working at a, a much earlier stage, but we spend time on the ground when we're going to run something in the early stages, doing scoping, recruiting and just meeting people. And I'm always surprised at what, uh, in a pleasant way, at what emerges as a part of that and the people that you meet by taking the time to do that. And the, that sense of if you dig deep enough, you'll find the entrepreneurs in that space or the problem solvers or those who get the opportunity if they're exposed. And so it's just it's finding those people and sometimes that can feel like, John, as you've alluded to, it can feel like finding a needle in a haystack. But I think Yumi's a good example of where we, we spent quite a bit of time on the ground and we found people and taking a risk you know, there's some people that we knew would do well as part of that. They had track record or they were doing other things that you could see that that could work. There was others that just had an idea and it was, well, let's take a risk and see how that plays out. Yeah. Do you have any processes when you go into these communities to try and find that needle in the haystack? I think some of our listeners yeah. surely have that challenge as well and, and would yeah. love to yeah, hear any advice. I think um, it's remaining open, my team say. To me, oh, you just you just like follow your nose and you find people that others haven't necessarily been able to find, and that's that's seriously what we do is we just get on the ground, we just talk to people, um, and so for example with Yumi, we just got on the ground, we talked to people who were already in the industry, and they'd say, oh, you really should talk to my aunt, she's got this idea about the and it'd be crazy idea, right? So you go and talk to the aunt. And you'd sort of go, oh, okay. And then there'd be another, and it's just spending enough time on the ground to meet people, to hear their stories, and the ability to see, I suppose, a diamond in the rough, or it's not going to turn up in a polished state. And, you know, we're typically looking for people who have a, a level of creativity, who are able to problem solve, who are looking at problems from a different angle. Yeah, that's some of what we do anyway. It's just getting on the ground and hearing people's stories and following your nose a little bit. Mm, it all comes down to having cups of tea. It was the, the best advice I was uh, ever given on that one. More and more cups of tea and you'll find the stories. There's, there's lots, lots and lots of drinking water, tea, coffee, whatever it is culturally relevant in that setting it's interesting when we hit town now people will come out of the woodwork i'll say oh we heard that tdi some of the some of the places that we've been working for a little while oh, we've heard that tdi and, uh, and we almost set up in a place you know like in a local restaurant or you know in a public place and people pop in and and you yeah you hear the story and you go oh that's interesting i wonder if you what you could do with that <laughs> what turn that into and it's the ability to have lots of those conversations and lots of them go nowhere <laughs> but you find the one or two that go somewhere <laughs> well that's right you have to have the passion for it don't you to be able to, to enjoy every moment of it and then from that entrepreneur side the investor side what are some key groups or investors in Australia who are targeting developing markets with these market-based solutions 
no one really that we're really working with that had a strategic we're addressing this problem in this market and we want to find investments of ABCD. Yeah. Um, I'd love I'm, to find that person, all those people. I'm yet to find them. And so you, it wouldn't be as much a fund manager coming saying we've got a, a women and girls strategy and we'd love to find, you know, a business, you know, to have an allocation. Does that ever happen or? Rarely. And so it's more individuals who might have made a grant and then they go, hang on, you know, I've got a business, I've got a business experience. We appreciate TDI does. I'd love to, you know, just do it in a different way. Yeah, pretty much. Look, I think that the whole space at such early stages, particularly in some of the work that we're doing, that it's like I don't know that investors necessarily have a luxury of saying we're just going after one problem or one uh, issue, but they may be there and I'd love to hear from them if they are. (laughs) Well, that's right. And and that's what I'm finding is, you know, lots of different angles and lots of different structures and the, the big investors simply can't deal with such small opportunities you know they sort of want them big and they want them to fit into their their platforms which is really difficult for these um small offshore issues that have all sorts of different risk issues so you know that's understandable from a donor perspective though john uh one of the groups that have been really interesting is dfat department of foreign affairs and trade and their commitment to exploring new models and how they can leverage a different type of money into aid and development and their commitment to that and their learning journey around that over the last probably four or five years has been very interesting to watch and um, we've obviously been a part of that journey with them. Yeah, well, they've got the Innovation Exchange, which I believe uh, you worked with on Yumi, um, and there's also yeah. the Impact Investing Fund that was announced about a year ago, but we haven't heard much of. What was the relationship and how did that fit in with, with your projects? We're engaged by DFAT probably about four years ago when they first began their exploration into private sector engagement, impact investing, and where did all that fit? And we ran a pilot for them about three and a half years ago that became a program called Pacific Rise or Pack Rise. Part of the pilot was there was two questions. One, what of our method was translatable into a developing context? And two, could a different type of capital or a different type of money be leveraged off the back of their granting? And out of that pilot, we did two investments. One was in a group called Tanner Coffee and one was in a group called Samoan Coconut Cluster. One was in Vanuatu and one was in Samoa. And DFAT's posture to learn from these initiatives. And as I said, out of that came Pacific Rise, which is funding intermediaries to work and um, impact investors to work particularly in the Pacific. There's obviously the, the EMF fund, which will find a life over the next sort of six months or so. And then the Innovation Exchange has been doing a, a lot of work in this space as well. So it's, they've definitely been on an, an exploratory journey to learn. Very good. They're learning. And, and, and you talked about your own journey of learning. And, and you mentioned you've done a lot of time reading and read lots of books. Can you offer any, any recommendations to people out there that, that would love to learn more about, about development and, and market-based approaches that, that are coming up? A Bible within TDI on development and market-based approaches. It's got some really great stuff about what we were talking about before around finding local entrepreneurs uh, and building capacity and, and those sort of things. So it's Ripples from the Zambezi by Ernesto Soroli. He's a great read. 
Very good. That's definitely going on the list. I'm accumulating quite a list as I have more of these conversations. I thought I was quite well read, but uh, there are more and more popping up that, um, yeah, it's really exciting. So yeah, hopefully that'll that'll help people, uh, you know, who are at home sitting uh, at their desk or, or maybe at the gym on the uh, exercise bike give them some motivation to yeah something they can they can really pick up and, and make a move you know tomorrow maybe that will then shift them to um, change their perception of a of a world vision ad and they might think a little bit <laughs> differently about how they see global issues and that sort of thing that would be a great outcome from this podcast if we can shift anyone's perceptions in that way and and just to, to shift people's perception that you can make an impact you know from what you read from what you feel how you talk about these things and how you react i think has an impact let alone how you invest your money and, and the way you work which is probably um a, a bigger stage but, but that can come down the line so yeah step by step yeah absolutely Thank you, Anthea, and thank you to everybody for listening. If you have any comments or questions, please do leave us a review on iTunes or a comment on Instagram. That's it for Good Future this week, but do stay tuned. Bye for now.